Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing innovation in the energy industry. Electric utilities are not the most dynamic or entrepreneurial companies around. They are heavily regulated, risk-averse animals focused on delivering reliable power to customers and reliable dividends to investors. Oil and gas companies might be more nimble and have a larger appetite for risk, but overall, energy is not thought of as the most innovative part of the American economy. For the next hour, we'll discuss why that needs to change if America is going to successfully separate economic growth from carbon pollution. Joining us with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club, we have three energy experts from three leading universities. Severin Bornstein is co-director of the Energy Institute at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. Richard Lester is director of the MIT Industrial Performance Center. And Dan Riker is executive director of the Steyer Taylor Center for Energy Policy and Finance at Stanford University. Please welcome them to Climate One. Gentlemen, thanks for coming. Uh, Richard Lester, let's begin with you. And if you could outlay for us, outline for us, there's three phases of innovation that you uh, put forward in, in your book. Tell us briefly what those three phases are. We'll kind of use that as the architecture for our discussion today. Yeah, it's. I think it's useful. This is a big, hard problem, and no single solution is going to work for us. It's useful to think about three successive waves of innovation, each developing momentum uh, at a different time and each breaking over our economy at a different time, but all of them needing to be accelerated and needing to be pursued in, in parallel. The first wave is what we can see happening over the next decade, and it's primarily focused on efficiency, improvements in efficiency in buildings and in industry and transportation. These are things, at least in some cases, that we can see happening early, in many cases because they are already uh, economically um, uh, viable, economically feasible. The second wave, probably useful to think about beginning uh, in terms of scale uh, around 2020 and working through the next three or four decades. And that wave is really about... uh, energy supply, decarbonized or low-carbon energy supply technologies. We know these already. We know what they are already, but in most cases, they're uh, too expensive relative to the high-carbon incumbents. During the 2020 to 2050 time frame, we can imagine uh, seeing those come into large-scale deployment uh, and contributing along with the efficiency wave, which will continue. And then after the middle part of the century, I think it's useful to think in terms of breakthroughs, uh, things that we perhaps don't even know about today or we may know about but still in the lab stage. And what we know about energy systems is that these technologies, breakthrough technologies, really take decades before they can uh, begin to make a significant contribution to, for example, carbon emission reductions. So the second half of the century would be the P 
period for the third wave of breakthrough uh, innovations. Sadly, it's not, I don't think, realistic to expect uh, breakthroughs, new uh, discoveries that are still at the lab stage to be playing much of a role in terms of carbon reduction much before the middle part of the century. So those are the three waves. I think the key point to say about them is that we can't afford to wait for the first wave to break before starting work on the second and third waves. We need to be pursuing all three waves of innovation simultaneously and accelerating all of them simultaneously today. So efficiency, decarbonizing supply, and breakthroughs, we'll get to all of those. Uh, Dan Riker, you were an assistant secretary of the Department of Energy for efficiency and renewables. Let's talk about the efficiency, the first wave. It, it, everyone who comes here says efficiency, it's a low-hanging fruit, it's easy. But why doesn't more of it happen? And we've seen recently uh, that the federal government has had some problems implementing efficiency in, in a, an effective manner. Well, first of all, it, it, it is the low-hanging fruit. And it's also the low-hanging fruit, as I like to say, that grows back. We don't use it up. The incandescent light bulb has been replaced by the compact fluorescent light bulb, which is being replaced by the LED light bulb, and who knows what comes next. So it's not as if we even use it up. It is a, it is a very, very attractive source of, of, of decarbonizing our economy, of lowering the cost of energy. So we know technologically that we can make great progress, that the challenge is – as you're indicating, how do you take this low-cost opportunity and really move it aggressively into the economy? That takes me to what I like to talk about as the three points of this critical triangle, technology, policy, and finance. I think too often we focus on how to make technological advances and somehow assume that out of that will come progress. It's not enough to, to make these uh, breakthroughs in the laboratory. If the right policy isn't in place, if the right capital isn't flowing, this doesn't happen. So even with low-cost energy efficiency, the good news with respect to efficiency, I think, is that, in fact, good policy has been put into place in many respects. The the whole set of standards that the federal government has put in place uh, regarding the efficiency of appliances and equipment, as boring as it may be, the refrigerator from the 1970s used 2,000 kilowatt hours a year. You can't sell one today that uses more than 450, and the standard got lowered further. That's had a dramatic impact on, on uh, the efficiency of that appliance, and 10 or 15 others have followed suit. There are TVs in California, for example. But recently we've seen the federal government put out a whole bunch of money into efficiency, and it wasn't, I mean, 15% or so of those, according to the Inspector General of the Department of Energy yesterday, weren't well implemented, weren't up to code. So so, we, so that, yesterday the Inspector General of the Department of Energy issued a report about the, the low-income home weatherization program, which is a tried-and-true program, been around for 25 years, to go into to, to poor people's homes and put in better insulation and do a variety of things. The challenge has been, with this massive amount of stimulus funding, huge amounts, unprecedented amounts of money, it's been hard for that program to gear up quickly. I, I don't take that as a, actually as a big problem, in a sense. It's, it, it's to be expected that when you take a program and multiply it, I don't know, by five or by ten, it'll be harder to do. I think we have way we, we have a variety of other problems which are much harder to solve than that one. Severin Bornstein, you think that auto efficiency is one of the one of the big gains, uh, the cafe standards. Let's talk about the impact of that. Has that been one of the real successes in uh, in effic- energy efficiency? Is the increasing mileage standards for automobiles? Well, I, it certainly has not been one of the real successes so far. Um, our mile- fuel economy has been flat for decades. Uh, it is potentially a success in the future if we can ramp that up. Uh, there is some new legislation that will improve fuel economy. Uh, there's no question fuel economy in the automotive sector is one of the easiest places to improve efficiency and reduce carbon, and we've paid very little attention to it. Uh, the technologies are getting better, but gasoline for the most part remains cheap. And when you ask people how much they're willing to pay to, or how much they, they need to save to drive a smaller car, it's a lot more than most people are. Uh, actually willing to give up. So 
So in, in twice in the it was flat for many years from '94 until I think what 2009. Uh, it's it jumped up to 36. It's about to go to 55 miles a gallon. Are you saying that that is uh, oversold or not as uh, as well, efficient as many people would like us to believe? Let's be clear. It's been raised to 36 for seven years in the future, and it's been raised to 55 for 14 years in the future. So those aren't happening yet. They will happen over time, and they will improve fuel economy when they do. Unfortunately, they've been designed in a way that those numbers are a little misleading, uh, particularly both of the last two uh, changes have been designed on a footprint basis, so that if you drive a bigger car, you actually get a bigger, a better fuel economy allocation. So it's, it was a. So it rewards to, SUVs? It, 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 it protects SUVs. Protects SUVs. If they're not rewarding them, so that uh, the agreement was we'll raise fuel economy standards, but we'll do it in a way that doesn't disincent big cars. So people who, quote, need big cars will still be able to drive them. Of course, the way it's actually written, uh, we are going to come up against a tension that under the current standards, it's not going to reach those targets. Now, the way the legislation's written, that automatically triggers tighter standards for all vehicles. Will that actually happen when we get to that point and we find we're not making progress as fast as we hoped? Uh, I don't know. Uh, people are remarkably resistant to the idea of improving fuel economy for cars if it involves any sort of sacrifice in the size of the vehicle. You mentioned pricing. Let's get, let's talk a little bit about pricing as a tool for driving efficiency, whether it's pricing water. I mean, things that are cheap, there's very little incentive to save. But your water is very inexpensive, uh, below its true value, electricity as well. I mean, should we be looking at price pressure to make things more valued and therefore have an incentive to save them more? Well, I'm an economist. I certainly think so, and the evidence is pretty strong that it works. It, it clearly works in fuel. Um, fuel is a very salient product. People, everyone in this room knows what gasoline costs. Um, most of you probably know what sort of fuel economy your car gets. Uh, so you have a pretty good idea of what you're spending on it. Electricity actually is a much harder uh, area because probably very few people, even in this room, know what a kilowatt hour costs. And certainly most of you don't know where your electricity is going. That is what's really consuming most of the electricity. It's, a, it's probably the least salient thing we consume. And therefore, it's very hard to get people to actually change their behavior in response to high prices. Now, people do. There's pretty strong evidence that when prices go up, for instance, people do focus on uh, air conditioning, particularly in hot areas, and doing that more efficiently. But uh, it's something that requires a lot more uh, ancillary public policy to inform people about how they can save energy. And in some cases, it requires standards. May, may I uh, just jump Richard, in on it. this? Because I, I think I uh, agree with what Severin's told us. But I think that the policy debate in recent years has been dominated by the idea that we have to raise prices so that the true cost of energy consumption, and in particular carbon emissions, are uh, is reflected. And uh, I believe that. I think probably we all believe that. But the fact is that politically it hasn't sold. And uh, I think it may be time for a shift in the, in, the, in the policy debate to focus less on what is certainly a, a key requirement of increasing the price of energy to reflect these costs and focusing more on the other half of the equation, which is figuring out how to reduce the costs of the things that we actually want, which are low-carbon uh, energy uh, technologies and, of course, uh, uh, efficiency approaches, which in large part are, I think, less about technology and more about organizational and institutional innovations. But if we can move the debate away from increasing the price of things towards reducing the cost of things through innovation, I think politically we will be in better shape. I, and I, would, I would add to that. I, I completely agree with Richard, and that's, that's the beauty of what breakthroughs in R&D can do. That's the beauty of innovation. If you, if you then connect to that, giving people better information, um, you know, we heard about how, how little people understand about electricity use in their home. Before I got to Stanford earlier this year, I was at running the energy and climate programs at Google, and one of the things that we developed was a, a simple meter that would give people 
uh, real-time information about their energy use in their homes. Um, and how and, did that work out? Well, for Google, the project didn't move forward, but we have a whole host of uh, venture-backed companies now pursuing that to provide that kind of real-time technology. Um, so it's whether it's a meter like we had sitting on the kitchen counter or you go on your laptop, it can not only give you the information, but tell you the two or three simple things to do. It was extraordinary to see my seven-year-old son one day put a piece of bread in the toaster next to the meter, and he, he suddenly saw this thing go to 1,500 watts, and he kind of understood all of a sudden what electricity in the home was about. He then began running around the house, trying out all the different things and seeing what happens on the meter. He knew more about what was going on in the house than we did, and that's, so, that's but, a step forward. But the reality is that, that Google didn't continue that because not enough people signed up for it, or Google had ADD and didn't, you know, didn't stick with it long enough. But I, um, well, well, without commenting on... on, on Google decision, the good news is that, that are quite a number of venture-backed companies are pursuing that, and increasing number of utilities are getting interested in that, and I think it's, there, there's, there's an opportunity there to give people real-time information in their home like they get in their cars, and, and I think change will come from that. But, but, to Richard's point, we need to also combine that with bringing the cost down for these technologies. So, the, if I can, Severin, just, the, I, I I agree with you fully on improving information. Um, but if electricity is really cheap, that can backfire. So, in most of the United States, if you leave your computer on all night, it costs you four or five cents. In California, it costs you eight or nine cents. Um, I think telling people that is not going to get them to con- turn their computer off. In fact, if anything, now that I've told you, many of you are thinking, why do I can turn my computer off every night? It doesn't matter. It's, I'm not saving anything, and it's because it's cheap. Well, having and lived in D.C. for a long time where you can easily spend many hundreds of dollars a month in the summer um, cooling that home and forgetting to turn that air conditioner off when you go on a vacation or go out for yeah. the day, it can be very significant. Same thing for, for winter energy bills. We're not just talking electricity here as well. You know, your natural gas use, a whole host of things. So, yeah, computers are inexpensive to run, but a lot of the home energy use is quite expensive. But But I think that there is an important lesson here, and it's not that Google maybe didn't stick with its... Microsoft uh, also backed off, so they're not alone. But but I think there's a a more important lesson to derive from this, which is that um, innovation doesn't always work. I mean, people develop new products and services, and much of the time, they don't work. But what we need, especially, I think, in this area of um, home energy use and uh, technologies associated with this, what we need is more Googles, more Microsofts. We need more entrants into this space. And I think the utilities in, in your opening remarks, Greg, you commented on the uh, fact that the utilities have become rather conservative when it comes to energy innovation. By the way, it wasn't always the case. If you go back far enough in our history, you would find utilities taking risks and doing very innovative things. But certainly in recent decades, that hasn't been the case. And it's not likely to change for all kinds of institutional reasons. And so what we need to do is to create the conditions under which it would be Reasonable for not just Google, not just Microsoft, but a whole raft of new entrants, companies that understand consumers and consumer behavior in a way that perhaps your local utility may not, uh, to come into the market and offer products and services, many of which probably won't work, perhaps because it's only about five cents or ten cents, but there are significant numbers of businesses that have succeeded by exploiting opportunities for people to save small amounts of money like that. We need those companies in the space. And, 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 and let, me, let me say, unfortunately, we reach, we've reached a moment where we may actually be heading in the opposite direction. This whole controversy around Solyndra, the loan guarantee that was made to the solar company, if anything has gotten us to a point where I think we may well be pulling back from, from uh, support of that sort, we may be demanding that anything we put money into has got to show, you know, very reliable, very quick uh, success and not allow 
um, for the, the what what innovation requires is placing bets, and some of those are going to win, and some of those are going to lose. And the federal government has been placing those bets in a whole host of technology areas well beyond energy for decades and decades. And I really worry that we could see our federal government pulling back from that. And that would be very unfortunate both for progress in clean energy and to say nothing of our competitiveness internationally. There was a quote recently where someone said, what if we had stopped our uh, march to the you know, progress toward the moon after some of the first fires and setbacks? We never would have gotten there if we'd given up at the first first fire, et cetera. Uh, but, Dan Record, let's drill a little bit on this innovation and appetite for risk. You talked about the government. There's also Silicon Valley has fallen in love with the energy industry in the last five or ten years. Uh, probably five years, and realizing that success hasn't come so easily there. This is not about a couple of kids wearing flip-flops, banging code in their dorm room. It's harder to build a power plant. And tell us your thoughts on that. Well, it's, it, it, it is true. Uh, you know, having been at Google where, in, at least in simple terms, um, a piece of software gets developed over a period of months, and then it gets deployed over a period of months, and you could actually end up with millions of users there. Around the world? Around the world. There we measured progress in months. When it comes to energy hardware, we really measure it in decades. It's it's two orders of magnitude difference in terms of, of how long it takes to get something deployed at scale. So solar photovoltaics, we've been at it roughly 40, 50 years, and we're not even at a quarter of a percent of U.S. electricity. So this is hard going if you're going to make a fundamental change in how you generate something from hardware. And we just have to we have to wake up to that. And I think the the, the the venture capital world is increasingly understanding that. But but some firms are in fact pulling back, saying, "Boy, this this commercialization problem, the so-called valley of death, as we call it, that sits between success with a small pilot plant and full commercial operation of a major plant. That valley of death looms very large in the energy technology world in a way that it doesn't with software." We're discussing energy innovation with three experts, uh, Dan Riker from Stanford University, Richard Lester from MIT, and Severin Bornstein from UC Berkeley. Severin Bornstein? So my concern is that I, I, I completely agree that we should be spending a lot more on research and development. Um, I think that the biggest shortfall is far upstream in the basic science research because I think the technologies that are going to solve this problem are ones that don't exist yet. Uh, most of the technologies that exist are really don't have the potential to be cost-effective with fossil fuels. And that's not just because they're expensive now. They will get cheaper. But I think what most people don't appreciate is that fossil fuels are very likely also going to get cheaper. Uh, we're seeing that with natural gas right now. We're very likely to see that with oil over the next 10 years. The te- there are companies who can make a lot of money improving the technology of extracting fossil fuels, and they're in that business, and they're doing really well at it. So the bar that they ha- that the renewables have to chase is getting harder and harder to clear all the time. So I, I think that we need to recognize that and need to recognize that what we need are these major leaps forward. What I worry about is that we are pushing technologies, some of which are already pretty mature, like rooftop solar PV, and some of which are getting more mature, like uh, cellulosic ethanol, um, into a market where their hands are tied behind their back, where basically it's all tilted against them because the real value of them is their environmental benefits, and we're not willing to price those. And I'm not optimistic that we're going to without – and I agree with Richard entirely on the political situation, but in, we, we can't, I think we can't take our eye off the pricing carbon because if we do – we're just going to have a lot of disappointments of technologies that haven't gotten to the point where they can be cost competitive. And by pricing carbon, you mean some policy that puts a price on the pollution e- from coal yeah. power plants, either, either a carbon tax or a cap and trade system. And our calculations are that if you go that route and you think about the world market for these fossil fuels, as you actually start to replace fossil fuels, their price is going to collapse. I mean, it's pretty clear in the oil market that if we actually took 25% of the demand out of the oil market, price of oil would be down in the $15 range. Where it was for many decades. Right. Richard Lester? So I, I have a somewhat different view, I think, from Severin about the relative roles of breakthroughs that we don't even necessarily know about versus technologies that we do know about but whose costs today are too high relative to the incumbents. I think it would be a mistake, and I'm saying this as a – I'm not an economist. I'm, a, I'm an engineer. 
And uh, you might therefore think that I would be most enthusiastic about breakthrough technologies. And I am in the long run. But we have to do a lot of work before the long run. And by that I mean that if we haven't figured out a way to decouple carbon emissions from economic growth by mid-century, we're going to be in very serious trouble for all the reasons that I think we, we understand. On that time scale, I don't think it's realistic to expect breakthrough technologies to be contributing on a large enough scale to address this problem. On that time scale, three, four decades, we're going to have to be relying on technologies whose scientific and engineering characteristics we already understand, nuclear, solar, wind, geothermal, etc., maybe energy storage. And it's sometimes not well appreciated, I think, that a lot of progress in terms of innovation takes place after a technology has actually entered into the marketplace. The cumulative improvements that do occur for technologies that are already in the marketplace over time and over this kind of three or four decade period are very large in many cases. And I think that for us to ignore the potential for bringing the cost down of some of these technologies that we might today look at and think, you know, solar photovoltaics, ah, we're never going to make that work. Nuclear, too expensive. We have to keep working on these technologies to bring the cost down, and I think that's really the game over the next three to four decades. So let's talk about solar and driving, driving the price down. Solar prices have gone tremendously downward uh, because China has flooded the market. Uh, Severin, you think that they're still too expensive, that people are foolish to put uh, residential solar, as I did on my rooftop, that they were paying too much. No? No, I, I don't think people are foolish to do it. I think the government is foolish to subsidize okay. it. If people want to put solar panels on the roof, that's fine. But if you have a limited set of re- amount of money you can spend to address the energy problem, the idea that we are spending a very significant ch- share of it with one of the most expensive technologies, which is solar PV on small rooftop installations. Now, solar PV has gotten a lot cheaper, and in large installations, warehouse rooftops and uh, open fields, it can pretty much compete with solar ther- large solar thermal plants. It's still three times as expensive as natural gas-fired power plants, though. So just to keep this in context, these things are getting a lot cheaper but they're still way out of the money. And so I think we need to target our money where there are potential gains for the and, – and to think carefully about will doing more of this actually drive its cost down. And I think that some, some places, solar PV on residential rooftops, it's pretty clear we're not going to make that progress. Other places, uh, carbon sequestration, large solar, um, some wind installations – I think that it's pretty clear there's a lot more room for potential dri- potentially driving costs down. So California's Governor Brown has a proposal to develop 12,000 megawatts of localized generation. The idea is sort of it's, it's near the demand center. doesn't require a lot of new distribution lines to be put through sensitive habitats or there's turtles or something like that, and 8,000 megawatts of large generation. So you think that's, that's misguided? I, I don't think that's where we should be putting the money. I think that... Distributed generation may at some point become economic, and when it is, we should uh, certainly count it. But I think that at this point, when you look at small distributed generation versus other renewable energy sources, it's so much more expensive that it's the idea of rolling out more of that, which we've been doing for more than a decade now. That's not going to drive the cost down of putting panels on your roof. It is true, panel costs have come way down. But if you look at the cost of installing residential solar PV in California, uh, three years ago it was $8 a watt. Today it's $7 a watt. That's in large part because, first of all, the large part of the cost of putting solar panels on your roof is the actual labor and installation. The, the, what's going on in China is not changing that. And, and to That's add, good for jobs, though. If, I mean, Dan Riker? Well, and to add to that, um, when you look at the cost of, of making energy efficiency upgrades to your home, it's a tiny fraction of that $7. Right. 
I had the experience when moving to California a few years ago. We went and did all the cheap energy efficiency upgrades to our home, and then we decided it was time to put look at putting solar panels on the roof. We got to a point where the solar installer said, oh, you have too small a system now. I thought, boy, that's an unfortunate consequence of having done the cheap right thing first. So I did it backwards. I did the solar first and then got grilled by a member who said, you should do efficiency first. Then I... You know, sealed the yeah, garage. Yeah, you know that that second refrigerator running in the garage that's yeah. 35 years old. You know, boy, that's those are the that's the real low hanging fruit, and that's the stuff that's got to come before it. The good news in all of this is that, in fact, that efficiency opportunity is out there in a very significant way in residential, commercial, and industrial settings. It's it's there for the taking. As I said earlier, we're continuing to make advances in that area. If we link that to these more advanced technologies, increasingly using solar, um, the increasing availability of cheap, relatively clean natural gas, put all of those into a smart system, you know, I think we can make good progress. But, Richard Lester, you believe that we haven't been, overall, the U.S. economy has not becoming uh, energy efficient at, at a fast enough rate, that it's been, what, 2 or 3%. So if efficiency is so obvious and so economic, why isn't it happening more or faster? Well, let's not understate what we actually have achieved. I mean, the, the, probably the, the best single measure of efficiency that we can use is the amount of energy that we require to produce a unit of economic output. And that's been declining over the last 20, 25 years by a little under 2% per year. That's caused by two factors, one good, the other not so good. The good factor is that part of that improvement has come through increased efficiency in houses, offices, and, and industry and the like. That's the good part. The less good part has been the movement of our most energy-intensive uh, activities, energy-intensive industries, offshore uh, to other, uh, other countries. And to the extent that those other countries engage in at least as carbon-intensive uh, energy supply as we do, nothing there will have been gained in terms of reducing carbon emissions. So we need to increase the good part of this, which is intra-sectoral energy efficiency, and not rely as much on the, the moving energy-intensive act activity offshore. But overall, we've been achieving something close to 2% reduction in energy use per unit of economic output uh, per year. We do have to do considerably better. If we're going to achieve these very ambitious carbon emission reduction goals, the president has stopped talking about it, but when he came into office, he used to talk about 80% reduction by the, the middle part of the century. To achieve that and have a reasonably respectable rate of economic growth, 2% per year per capita, not outstanding, but not bad either. We're going to need to go from where we are today and have been for the last quarter century, 2% reduction in energy use per capita, up to perhaps 3 or perhaps 4%. It doesn't sound like very much, but it's a lot. And very few states in the country, including California, have managed to get above 3%. Uh, reductions in energy use per unit of economic output per year. So there's a long way to go, but let's not focus on too many of the failures of federal programs and so on. Let's focus on the fact that we have actually made some progress in this area. We have to do much better. And those areas where success has been achieved, whether it's refrigerators, televisions, have been through government mandate rather than, right? Is that the fair to the, autos? The appliance, uh, uh, Dan's uh, comment earlier about the success of appliance standards, I think we need to pay attention to because that has been one of the principal drivers. And so what's next? What, what are well, the next one of the ones? alternatives, you, uh, Severin said earlier, you know, are, are we going to get – get around to controlling carbon emissions, cap and trade, a tax on carbon. The other approach, which is has seen some debate in Washington, is setting a national clean energy standard. That would be a, 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 another approach to that. Um, for electricity generation. For electricity generation narrowly, potentially for other kinds of fuels as well. Getting to a standard that says over five years, 10 years, 20 years, this is the trajectory for uh, the mix of, of energy supplies, just like many, many states have set clean energy standards themselves. Some 20 states have now done that. There's discussion in Washington of doing the same. 
I think, unfortunately, the, the gridlock there now makes it likely that we're not going to see that happen. But, but that is another route to this that would have some of the impact that we're talking about. Dan Steyer is executive director at the Steyer Taylor Center for Energy Policy and Finance at Stanford. Other guests today at Climate One are Richard Lester, director of the MIT Industrial Performance Center, and Severin Bornstein, co-director of the Energy Institute at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton. Severin, did you want to jump in here? No. The, uh, we, uh, Dan Riker, you mentioned earlier that venture capitalists are pulling back on the funding, government's pulling back on funding. So where is the money going to come from? If the wealthy VCs and government are not going to put money into energy innovation, is this going to happen? Where's the financing? Well, so, I, you know, there remains in, in certain parts of the venture community, this, this so-called clean tech area, you know, certain firms remains pretty robust, but there are others that have definitely pulling back. They're not seeing the kind of successes that they have in software. So that is that is worrisome. Um, government, is, as you say, is pulling back, and we could see a big, big fall in the next year's budget for federal research and development. We could see the end of the loan guarantee program, a whole host of things. I think it's a pretty rough moment right now when it comes to the U.S., and I think what we're increasingly going to watch are firms going elsewhere, for example, to China, um, trying their best to get technologies commercialized here uh, without the kind of support they need, public and private sector, going to China, and uh, we're going we're gonna to lose the economic upside as a result of that. So it's, that's a very serious risk, and I'm, I'm hopeful that in Washington, on Wall Street, in Silicon Valley, that that, that dynamic is, is taken seriously because it's a real one. There's good examples already of that happening. Richard Lester. I mean, it, obviously, we are in a difficult moment. And uh, in difficult moments, almost everything seems impossible. But let's not forget that the problem we're talking about here is not a problem that even in the best of environments could be solved in a year or two years or even five years. This is a problem that's going to take decades uh, to sort out. And so we should be focusing today on taking measures that won't necessarily pay off this year or next year, but might position us for uh, an effective longer-term approach to what is inherently a longer-term problem. And one of the biggest needs is the uh, area of, of, of financing relatively risky new energy technologies. And, the, and it, while it's true that we have been seriously under-investing in upstream research and development, and we, I think, would all agree that that's an area that does demand more investment, an even bigger deficit that we have is in the energy sector, is in the downstream stages of the innovation process, which involve demonstration of new technologies in the marketplace and early adoption of those technologies after their demonstration and in conditions in which they may not at that point be cost competitive, but over time there may be some expectation that the costs will come down to the point that they will be cost competitive. Those downstream stages of the innovation process require, for many of these energy technologies, large amounts of capital, capital that exceeds by a substantial margin, maybe orders of magnitude, the typical venture capital investment uh, that we see in software and other kinds of things that, that they are uh, more familiar with. One of the things that we need to figure out is how to create pools of capital that will be large enough to support the relatively risky downstream stages of the energy innovation system. We haven't sorted that out yet. There are some interesting ideas. I know Dan and others have been working on some of these ideas. At MIT, we've been thinking about these things also. But this is, a, this is an area that we need to be paying attention to because over a period of three or four decades, we will need substantial amounts of risk capital beyond the, that are beyond the ability of the venture capitalists and, sadly, the federal government to provide. And the federal government has a very poor record of sus- yes, consistently funding those things. Severin Bornstein? So I, I guess I am always skeptical of the financing argument as a major barrier. I understand there's, there's some real concerns, but 
you know, there are oil companies out there that spend billions of dollars every year looking at, in extremely high-risk ventures looking for new oil. Uh, when you talk to those people and say, why aren't you investing in biofuels? The answer is not, we don't have the capital, we're constrained. The answer is, we don't want to lose money. The price isn't going to be there. This is not going to be cost-effective. And we're not interested in just doing it for PR purposes. That, By the way, that's key, just doing it. They are definitely interested in doing it for PR purposes. They get another benefit besides just the investment, and they are spending money on it. But they see the payoff of this right now is still very negative because yeah. they don't see it as having the payoff that yeah, but, but fossil the, fuel investment will. But the, but the, it's, I mean, it is absolutely correct to say that the oil companies do, in their field of expertise, take very significant financial risks. What we're talking about here is really a need for investment in especially electric power technologies. And it's not, I think, realistic to expect the oil and gas companies to be making the kinds of high-risk technology-focused investments in electric power. They have a number of reasons why they don't do these sorts of things. But I think actually the most important reason is that they don't invest in these technologies because they don't really understand them. They may do it for PR reasons, but that's not their business. So we need to focus on where the capital will come for investment in new electric power technologies. Sadly, the utilities are probably not going to be the source of capital for these kinds of investments. Let's take a specific example of, of carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, a lot of utilities said, look, it's too big for us. We don't want to put the money in up front. We want the government to do it. The government sank a couple billion dollars into that hole. George Bush administration stopped some of that research. Uh, when do the public keep pouring money down a big hole and saying, oh, we got to stick with it? And when do we say, hey, that's enough? We're, we're wasting our time, wasting our money on something that may never prove fruitful. Well, I, I, I think if we want to talk about carbon capture, I mean, I think the answer is – actually, I think the problem is the opposite of what you're describing. I think what we have lacked in that area is a sustained program Consistent of investment commitment. over a period of many years, which is what will be required to determine whether this is a feasible technology or not. And I, I agree with Richard on that, but I, I think that that's a great example that is just not going to be a private sector investment. The payoffs to it, the private payoffs to building, to pushing ahead on the first CCS project are going to be negative. You're going to lose money on it. The payoffs are the social payoffs of figuring out whether this works or not. But bringing and these fundamentally together, I mean, Severn has said we need to put a price on carbon in some way. That's going to drive some of this to happen. Richard has said we need to be investing in, in these, this scale up, this commercialization. I like to think that at some point we're going to start to get serious about carbon emissions, and I'd, and I'd like to believe that when we do, we're going to have the technologies in pretty good shape to respond. And I think that's, to Richard's point, I think public and private sector investment in this scale-up right now and going forward is very, very important. I mean, I was in a private equity firm that, that faced this problem. We could, we could make investments and did regularly in corn ethanol plants, a well-established technology turned corn into ethanol. Could we invest in alternative ways to make ethanol from, from other kinds of plant materials? We couldn't. The risks were too high. But did plant number one and number two need to get built to demonstrate that before investors broadly would invest? They do. That's a role, that's a role for government. Government did that in the case of nuclear power, built the first commercial-scale plants to demonstrate that that technology works. Government has done this in a whole host of ways, and government should be a, should have a role going forward in the energy area. So and I, I, I agree with Dan on that. I, I want to disagree a bit with Richard, though, on the sort of tilt between basic R&D and the downstream investment. We are doing a lot of downstream investment for potentially good reason, and some of those are going to fail. Uh, and Solyndra certainly should not be taken as uh, the story one way or the other. But it is worth recognizing that what we lost, what the federal government lost on Solyndra, is more than twice the entire budget of ARPA-E, 
ARPA-E is the part of Department of Energy that's supposed to be investing in basic research and development for energy. That one downstream investment dwarfs the investment we're making in the basic R&D of breakthrough energy. And that's if RPE survives till next year. It's quite possible that in the current round, they could, their budget could just disappear. I hope that won't happen. Every study that's been done from the Heritage Foundation to a group that Bill Gates put together has said that this, the budget of this organization should be increased at least 50%, probably 400%. Uh, and we're not doing it. And I agree that we're not going to make much progress in the next 30 years on carbon. But to have the technologies 30 years from now, we got to be spending the money now to push them forward. There's, and there's one more aspect to this. I'm all for pricing carbon. But I think realistically, India is not going to price carbon. Uh, China is probably not going to price carbon anytime soon. And so we well, need to... They're doing some things, though. Some people might... China, China is doing some things, and one of them is building a new coal-fired power plant yeah, every three right, days. Right. So, so the, the, they are... A lot of dirty, a lot of green. It's yeah, a mixed bag so, of China. But, but, but the fact is that we need to come up with technologies that the developing world will accept. And they aren't going to be ones that, where, that require a $100 a ton price of carbon. They're going to have to be ones that actually can be cost competitive. Severin Bornstein is co-director of the Energy Institute at the UC Berkeley School of Business. Our other guests today at Climate One are Richard Lester, director of the MIT Industrial Performance Center, and Dan Riker with the Steyer Taylor Center for Energy Policy and Finance at Stanford. We're going to put our audience uh, microphone up here and invite your participation. So if you're on this side of the room, we encourage you to please come to the door over there where Jane Ann is, and it will form the line there. And I encourage you to present one, one part uh, question, and if you need some help keeping that uh, short and sweet, I'm here for you. Um, <laughs> and um, on China, I'll just say one thing. We had a discussion here recently on China. They've done something that, no, that uh, certainly the U.S. hasn't done, which is they've tied the performance of a lot of government officials to carbon and energy efficiency uh, goals and metrics so that bureaucrats throughout China are now evaluated on meeting carbon and energy goals. So at least there's a bureaucratic in, incentive uh, in China. Let's have our next audience, first audience question, please. Uh, yes, as a uh, follow-on to what was discussed on carbon tax, within the last two weeks, I think maybe a little bit before that, uh, a large global international resource company in the mining and metals business, both ferrous and non-ferrous, announced that as a result of or they didn't actually say it that way, the carbon tax legislation in Australia, they were divesting themselves of their aluminium production capabilities in Australia as well as looking into doing the same in Europe, another area where carbon taxation is, shall we say, popular in vogue or at least being presented in a very threatening manner. Now, this is a response, uh, let's call it a price signal from a leading shall we say, rational, not politically motivated uh, industry that has been in the business for a long period of time, and it demonstrates the response of, let's call it uh, big business, to carbon taxation. Could I get a comment as to whether this is going to be continuing, or is it an aberration, or is this what we can expect for economic improvement associated with carbon taxes? International trade issues are a huge issue associated with carbon taxes. You can't just do a carbon tax and ignore what it's going to do. California is worrying about this right now on the state budget, state level, because we're about to impose a cap and trade that will raise the price of emitting carbon. But make no mistake about it, the fact is that when you price carbon, things that are carbon intensive become more expensive. Uh, And if there is a place you can do that cheaply, and not have to pay for the carbon, whether it's China, where it is going on, or other parts of the developing world, companies are going to be inclined to move there. And that is why we really need to impose these sorts of prices with some sort of uh, border adjustments uh, that take that into account and recognize the potential for what's called leakage. Right. Let's have our next audience question. Thanks. Um, Gavin Purchase from the Climate Works Foundation. Thank you very much for a very interesting talk. The question is, um, what role can the military play in advancing energy innovation? You know, I'd like to, to respond to that. Um, Dan Riker. The, uh, 
things are on the, on the clean energy front are not exactly going swimmingly in Washington, D.C., but one of the brighter spots, in fact, is, is the interest of the U.S. military in, in clean energy. We've, we've, we've seen a dynamic over the last year or two of the Department of Defense, the various branches of the military stepping up and saying, you know, whether it's on the, the front lines fighting wars or back home at our installations, um, clean energy can really make a difference. Instead of dragging huge amounts of fuel to the to the front lines, uh, even something like a solar panel, which may not be cost-effective in normal circumstances, can be highly cost-effective. And back home, um, we can definitely improve the energy efficiency of our of our bases. So that is happening. Now, there is some pushback. Just within the last few weeks, as these military budgets have gotten very tight, some folks in Washington are beginning to ask questions about whether this is an appropriate role for the military. I think that scrutinizing their own budget um, and looking at opportunities in clean energy um, is a very important thing to do. The U.S. military is the single largest single largest entity um, using energy in our country. So there's a lot that they can both do and drive. So overall, I think it's, a, it's one of the brighter spots in Washington. They're also pooling capital with uh, – we had a, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy here recently, and they're pooling capital, uh, government money, with private money to try to get at some of this valley of death financing that, uh, that we talked about. But there's another twist on this before we get to our next audience question, which is energy security, the idea that the U.S. should produce most of its energy, which is related to the military question. Uh, and Severin Bornstein, you don't think that that's such a good idea, that the energy security, that there's some potential downfalls in that? No. What I, my concern is that the Obama administration and many people who are really worried about climate change and realize that has no political traction now are saying, okay, let's do it for energy security reasons. And I think that's a trap. I think that the fossil fuel industry has this figured out. Clean coal has been sold for a long time, and the coal industry is ready to step up and tell us they can solve our energy security problem. And now the liquid fossil fuel industry is going to go the same direction. The, natu- the breakthroughs we've seen in natural gas are starting to happen in oil as well. Oil production in the United States is increasing Oil self-sufficiency in the United States is increasing. We now produce more than half the oil we consume. And it is very possible that 10 years from now, the U.S. will be a net oil exporter. So it, so the it's energy security problem is solved. The problem is the climate problem hasn't been touched. And I'm worried that what I think is a political feint to use this in order to get at climate change is going to backfire and we're going to end up solving the energy security problem and making no progress on climate change. Not a fan of the picking plans, I can tell. Um, next <laughs> question, please. Yeah, Jesse Jenkins. I direct the Energy and Climate Program at the Breakthrough Institute. Uh, this is a great discussion. Um, Severin, you mentioned how much money we invest in deployment of to sort of today's uh, renewable technologies, wind, solar, et cetera. And, and Richard, you're pointing out how much uh, actual innovation occurs after we reach that stage of deployment as these technologies scale up, mature, um, uptake new uh, new designs and, and, and components of those technologies. I, the way we do clean energy deployment subsidy today is a lot more like crop supports than it is uh, the military procurement that we've been talking about that got us nuclear power originally, uh, jet engines, microchips that were cheap enough for computing to take off on a widespread basis. I'd lo- like to hear your thoughts on how we can um, restructure that phase of deployment. These are artificial markets that we're creating through public policy to help drive the maturation and scale-up of these technologies. How can we do that better to provide the right incentives for these technologies to come down in price as quickly as possible? Well, I think one of the things that we can do and that we really need to do um, is to put the allocation decisions for these downstream investments that you're talking about more closely in the hands of the entities that will actually be using the innovations. Uh, At the moment, we have a system, and you characterize it one way, and, and, and I think You could characterize it a number of different ways, but if you have government officials making decisions on these downstream investments, most of which are involved with technologies that are either in the marketplace already, and if not, then getting pretty close to it, it's not going to work as well as if the decisions are made by users either directly or indirectly. So I think we have to develop schemes uh, that put these decisions closer to the point of use, number one. Number two, 
I think we have to regionalize this decision-making. We talk a lot about partisan politics limiting um, uh, what we can actually do in the energy sector, but I think we also all recognize that one of the major roadblocks to getting things done are regional differences, differences between parts of the country that have different resource bases, different assets, different inclinations towards different technology. We talked about Governor Brown uh, deciding about solar. It's not likely that Governor Brown would ever make a recommendation that California invest in nuclear power. But that's actually not beyond the pale for the southeastern part of the country. And if we were able to give more of the uh, resource allocating function or push it down to the regional, state, maybe even local levels, I think we would be in better shape uh, in, in respect to these downstream investments. Let me quickly add, there, there is pending in Washington, it enjoys some good bipartisan support, um, something called a proposal to create what's called the Clean Energy Deployment Administration, which would take this loan guarantee program and turn it into what I think would be a much more effective program with a much broader array of tools. The entity could actually take a a financial stake in the projects that it supports so wouldn't necessarily have to go back to Congress for more appropriations, uh, could do a whole host of things that, that this loan guarantee program can. It would have some independence from the Department of Energy and from the Office of Management and Budget, and it enjoys some bipartisan support. So, so there are some approaches. We're working on a couple things at Stanford now, uh, incubating a potential business that could get at this commercialization problem as well. So there are models out there. You heard one from Richard. We, we, could, we could fix this problem, um, and there's, there's a variety of ways to do it. We're discussing energy innovation at Climate One. Let's have our next audience question, please. Hi. <clears throat> Hi. Uh, Ted Coe with the uh, Clean Coalition. And one of the uh, Mr. Bornstein's comments before around how larger-scale DG was actually becoming cost-competitive with uh, central station uh, large-scale uh, generation is true and is actually getting to the point where it's – when you factor in all the factors and you don't just look at the sticker price of energy, you actually are saving money in the larger scale of the DG situations because you're avoiding a lot of transmission. Which, so, which generations are you talking about? Solar thermal? Yeah, well, yeah. large scale, large scale renewables, solar yeah. thermal, central station. So, um, so in, in, with respect to the Governor Brown's, Governor Brown's goal, and then you then went on to say that you don't think the DG should be the focus of the goal because it's more expensive. Whereas actually, it's not. So, this is this is more of a focus in this whole panel on on cost, 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 and a lot of the policy discussions here in California and around the country is about cost of energy, cost of energy, without looking at the benefits and the difference in the benefits of your choices. Berkeley's own report came out last year saying that if we did more DG versus central station, right. distributed energy generation is that yeah, the DG distributed generation, we would actually create three times more jobs for California than if we went with the central station model for so let's, generation. Let's have you guys come in. Reactions. Um, there are many aspects to that comment. One, one is that uh, the, the distributed generation proposal is just going to be large-scale distributed generation, and that's certainly not the case, although that is more cost-competitive. But it's cost-competitive with solar thermal, which is three times the cost of natural gas still. So just sort of to be clear. On the jobs thing, you know, this is a whole other hour. Um, but I certainly don't agree with the... Uh, the paper you've quoted, and the paper you've quoted essentially just says it takes a lot more labor to produce a, to produce a kilowatt hour with uh, renewables than with uh, fossil fuels, so it creates jobs. Of course, it raises the price of electricity, and that kills jobs. Uh, so I think the net effect is when you spend more resources to create electricity, in the end, that lowers the standard of living, not counting the environment. We have to start counting the environment is the point. But when we do it, we have to do it with the most cost-effective technologies. And unfortunately, I don't see that being pushed. I see uh, whatever, whoever has the most influence in whatever capital is making the decision or whatever sexy. And unfortunately, the thing that still appeals to people is I want solar panels on my roof, or at least wealthy people who predominantly are the people who get those subsidies. Let's have our next audience question. Hi, I'm Scott Bergquist, a uh, local inventor. And I wanted to pose a question. I'm sure it's a question that always receives a very negative reaction, but in order to save energy and uh, reduce carbon emissions immediately, how about a mechanical device, 
an escapement on every extent vehicle in our 220 million vehicle fleet in the United States to reduce the speed to a maximum attainable speed of 34 miles an hour. That would re- that would reduce the weight of the vehicles, the weight of the engines, casting the engines, all kinds of things. If anyone's ever been to Singapore, they, I don't know if it's still true, but they used to have the, the lights would blink on the top of the cars in Singapore when they went, exceeded the speed limit. That's something wait, wait, that, wait. 34. Was there something about 34 as opposed to 35 or 33? Yeah, well, that's 55 kilometers per hour. It's also at the point where aerodynamics start to take an effect. Um, <laughs> You know, as you may know, the as the speed increases, the need for power increases by a factor of three. So, as you if you limit it to 34, then the aerodynamics of the vehicle aren't such a problem. Thanks. We um, so it, there, there's definitely an appeal in using less fuel, um, but if you look at the debate in the United States, and not just in the United States, but in Europe and everywhere else. The idea of raising fuel prices is anathema, and I think it's because people feel they have a God-given right to cheap transportation at the speed they want to go. And I think if you did the value of time calculation at current gas prices, uh, there's no way it would be worth the savings to go 34 miles per per hour. And I suspect at $10 a gallon, there's no way it would be worth the savings, and people would push back very hard. It's not that... It may not be a. It may be a good way to do it, but the fact is, it would be very costly. Yes, sir. Hi, Jeremy Wang with the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. <clears throat> Sorry, I have a cold. A lot of the discussion here about government is focused largely on the federal level and some to the state level. And I'm curious what opportunities you see on the regional and municipal local levels, um, especially with the financial challenges that governments at those levels are having right now. Richard Lester, you have some ideas about entrance in one area where local governments can allow more robust marketplaces is to allow more entrance into uh, generating electricity, something that's happening here in the Bay Area and a couple of cities. You want to? Well, I think actually the the public utility commissions do have an important role uh, in this regard because the particularly for uh, uh, the part of the power sector that. Uh, and the very, very important part of the sector that uh, takes place, the activity that takes place beyond the customer side of the meter, uh, the question, I think, is going to be who gets to compete to provide services to customers. And in some parts of the country, uh, the utilities have made it very clear that they regard that as their province. In other parts of the country, it's a different story. But everything that we know about innovation in other sectors leads us to conclude that the more open that part of the electric power sector is to new entrants, to new competitors, uh, the more rapidly we will see new services and products enter uh, into this absolutely crucial part of the energy sector. And I think public utility commissions have an important role in working with the utilities to make it possible for uh, uh, open entry uh, into this part of the electric power sector. And maybe in California the story is a little different from the way we see it in the northeast and other parts of the country. But I think there's a general message there, which is let's open this sector up because that's where the innovation is going to come from. It is happening a little bit here in San Francisco through community choice aggregation. The state passed a law. Marin County is trying to do that. Some other cities trying to break PGD's monopoly in generation and allow uh, consumers' choice and, and some competition for, for generation. I would add one of, the, one of the very straightforward, very productive roles that municipal governments have played and could be playing a lot more is going into low-income homes and helping people figure out how to save energy. Um, uh, it's a very – municipal governments are close to those communities. It's, it's a great way for – to go into families who can spend, you know, 10, 20, 30 percent of their take-home income um, in cold weather or hot weather on energy. 
Um, and despite what the Inspector General at the Energy Department said yesterday, these are these are good good solid programs with long track records. Um, and so I think that's a great role for municipal governments. Last quick question and then quick answers. Yes, please. Hi, Lori Sinsley, Environmental Defense Fund. We're big proponents of cap and trade. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on um, the regulation that was just approved here. Um, do you think it's going to drive innovation if the companies that are regulated have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to comply? Do you think we're going to get there fast enough? Might specify what regulation you're talking about. The California's cap and trade, cap and trade program, program in California. Just approved. We're, we're close to the end here, but let's uh, get on cap I, and trade. I think California's cap and trade program is probably not going to be uh, significant enough in itself to drive that innovation. First of all, I think prices are likely to be very low, and the major uh, emitters are going to get a lot of free permits. Um, I think that uh, as a model. The real value of California going in this direction all along was as a model for the rest of the country and the rest of the world. Um, and I think it still has that value. Unfortunately, I think the prospect for getting picked up in the rest of the United States has not gone as well as we'd hoped. Are there some provinces in Canada that might be coming along? Others? Uh, uh, Richard Lester, Dan Riker? I, I just add that, uh, just to emphasize something, innovation is a part of this, but if we don't have the downstream part, the manufacturing that goes along with this, um, there's a very interesting column in the Washington Post yesterday by a fellow named Meyerson that without the downstream manufacturing, all the economic upside that we talk about with innovation isn't, isn't going to happen. And, and, he, and he looked at the case of Apple, which it turns out virtually all its manufacturing jobs are overseas. And as much as there's been great innovation, the economic upside isn't going to be felt in this country the way it could be. So we've got to, we've got to also turn to that part of the equation as well. And we have, to, uh, we have to end it there. Our guests today at Climate One have been Dan Riker, Executive Director of the Steyer Taylor Center for Energy Efficient Policy and Finance at Stanford University. It's another institute on efficiency, sorry. Uh, Richard Lester, Director of the MIT Industrial Performance Center, and Severin Borenstein, Co-Director of the Energy Institute at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton. A podcast, free podcast of this program is available in the iTunes Store, along with other Climate One programs. Thank you all for coming, and thank you for listening on the radio.